everybody, we come to a famous and familiar text today where Paul has the audacity to say that for those who love God, all things work together for good. But consider these scenarios for a moment. A seemingly healthy 12-year-old develops a, a severe migraine headaches. On Friday, she's taken to the hospital. On Saturday, she dies. Her father called her the sunshine of my life. Her young boy is a star baseball player in the making with aspirations for the big leagues. He, he starts having strange symptoms and is diagnosed with a rare neurological disease that will prevent him from ever playing ball again. How about a man who feels the call of God to go into ministry and he leaves his good job to go to seminary and his wife takes a job to help him achieve his dream and he gets assigned to his very first church when his wife abruptly announces, I, I met someone else, I'm leaving you. Or a policeman who makes a, a routine traffic stop, sees some suspicious activity in the car and tries to do his job and help the young passengers when the driver pulls out a gun and shoots him in cold blood. The officer was in his 20s. Like we all know stories like this. Some of you have lived stories like this. And we come to a passage today that doesn't make any sense in light of stories like this. That's what we're going to talk about today. And I, I hope to shed some light on this oft-quoted and oft-misunderstood text. And so I want to begin by reading the text, Romans 8, 28. It says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Now, if Pastor Scott's section last week and the passage from Easter focused on hope, this week's passage focuses on joy. Like we get a sense from this text that Christians can possess a relentless and impervious joy. And remember, this is the job of the Holy Spirit is to remind us of these things. And so as you listen to the Spirit, as you lean on him and consult him, he will remind you of this unshakable joy that's yours. But your joy will be strong only to the extent that you really grasp the full meaning of what this passage actually says. And so let me begin by correcting three common misunderstandings from, from Romans 8.28. So here's the first. It does not promise that a Christian's circumstances will be better than anyone else's. So, so many Christians believe deep down, like if I love and serve God and do my devotions in the morning, <laughs> that I will not have as many bad things happen to me that, than the jerks I know. By and large, my circumstances should be better because, well, I, I have God on my side. You'll hear this go all the way to health and wealth preachers saying this till they're blue in the face. And it's one of the greatest false teachings of our time. Let me be clear. The same kinds of bad things that happen to everyone else will happen to people who love God. In fact, a little further down in verse 35, Paul adds some detail in what's included in the all things that are supposedly working together for good that Christians are going to face. He says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And then he gives this list. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? What is Paul assuming? He's assuming that Christians are going to go through all that stuff. That same crappy stuff that happens to everyone else is going to happen to you even if you love Jesus. So this verse does not suggest immunity from these things. Second, it does not promise that things will automatically work together for good without God. So, so there's this common belief optimistic people have that everything is just going to work out eventually. Like all will be well. It'll all come together in the end. Just keep being positive, positive thoughts, positive self-talk. Keep the positive vibes going. And, and it's just going to shake out okay. Notice, Paul does not say things work together for good. In fact, my experience is that things rarely, if ever, work together for good on their own. 
A Christian approach to life, though, understands that if anything is going is to go well, it's because God is working it together. But this passage does not say that given enough time, everything is just going to be fine. Third, it is not an invitation to pretend that bad things are actually good. This passage doesn't say that all things are good. So, so when bad stuff happens, we shouldn't be shy about calling it bad. Let's not move on too quickly from our pain and get to our Christian phrases and platitudes. Like we should rage at death. We should mourn at pain and betrayal and divorce and slander and struggle. We should fight against sin and injustice. Like too many Christians think passages like this mean that we're supposed to just stuff our feelings and say, well, God has a plan or just paint on some fake smile. No, bad things are bad. And so don't try to pretend that they're not. But... We rage and we grieve and we process differently than the world because we know one important thing, that even when very real and very bad things happen to you and all around you, God is still at work. He hasn't abandoned. He hasn't left the scene. He is still deeply involved. And so each experience may not be good by itself, but God is able to bring good from it. Now, I've shared this illustration before, and it's not a perfect metaphor, but it, it, it gets the point across. Life experiences are kind of like ingredients in a recipe. God is making something, and at the end, that something is going to be good, but each ingredient may not be good by itself each step of the way. For example, if you get all the ingredients out in your kitchen to make a cake, I don't know about you, but, but I've never been tempted to take out like a big old bite of shortening or butter or whatever by itself or, or, or to crack a couple of raw eggs right into my mouth. Just go Rocky Balboa on those suckers. <laughs> or, or how about a big spoonful of salt by itself? Or what about baking soda? Anybody enjoy a nice heaping tablespoon of baking soda? So, so by themselves, these ingredients are, are all kind of bad. What about chocolate chips? Okay, those are good. One out of six ain't bad. But, but when you mix five bad things together with one good thing, and you stir them all together, and you stick them in an oven, oh man, like that's good. And it's kind of like what God does with our experiences. He can take bad, 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 and good, and turn it into something really good. Now, we have to define good, and we're going to do that in a minute, but it starts with full confidence in a divine author who is sovereign in order to, to surrender your story to his. In the meantime, we don't have to pretend that the bad things are good. So here's how I've summarized today's big ideas. We consider Romans 8, 28 and the verses that follow. God doesn't promise you better life circumstances. He promises you a better life. Now, we're going to walk through this passage, and I'd like to frame it this way. Let's explore a better life, and then how to maintain joy in the midst of struggle. So, so here's the first thing I think we need to see from the text. Joy means rethinking how you define good. So, so he says, all things work together for good. And so much of our thinking has been trained to define good in terms of materialism or, or short-term gain. We often define good as like a new car, a new boat, or a restored relationship, or good fortune, just things generally working out for us. Or if a bad thing does happen, we, we think, okay, well, that means a better thing is ahead. And so somebody loses their job and they quote Romans 8.28, all things work together for good, which means I may have just lost my this job, but that means God has a better job for me. Or, or your fiance broke off the engagement. And that just means that God has a better person for me to marry. And, and so in these examples, you're still interpreting good 
through a short-term, temporal, kind of materialistic lens. Listen, if any of that happens, like if a better job comes along or a better partner comes along, guys, that's wonderful. You should celebrate that. Thank you, Lord Jesus. <laughs> but that is not the promise here in this text. That's just God's grace. But, but listen, there are plenty of people who end up marrying a crazy person instead of that perfectly normal one that they were engaged to or getting a worse job than they had before or no job at all. The promise here isn't that if a bad thing happens, a better one of those things is coming right behind it for you. That's not the promise. Instead, good must be defined in spiritual terms. And here's the ultimate good. The ultimate good is God's glory. And God is most glorified when his children, you and I, live as Christ did in the power of the Spirit. As always, context is very important here. And so we see in the next verse, Romans 8, 29, it actually explains verse 28. Here's what it says. It says, for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Here's our big idea again. God does not promise you better life circumstances if you love him. He promises you a better life. And the better life can be defined as becoming more like Jesus. Being conformed to the image of his son. Otherwise, People just see God in Romans 8, 28 as like a genie in the bottle granting wishes all day long to fulfill our petty pleasures. Like if I don't get into this grad school, God will get me into a better grad school. Well, grad school is a circumstance. Marriage is a circumstance. Your job is a circumstance. But we're talking about a joy that goes above and beyond all circumstances. And so Jesus Christ came to the original disciples who, who would eventually lose all of their circumstantial treasures, jobs, homes, friends. And he says, you can walk in a joy that's not dependent on your circumstances. Now, this doesn't mean that material blessings won't be included in the good stuff. Like the Bible is very clear that God delights in giving his children good things. But the point here is this. Jesus Christ did not suffer so that you would never suffer. Instead, he suffered so that when you do suffer, you'll become like him. The gospel doesn't promise better life circumstances. It promises you a better life. And in Romans 8, 29, we're told what that good is. What is good is that every single thing that happens to you is moving you toward Christ-likeness. This is the ultimate joy of our lives. And it probably involves adjusting our definition of what it means for something to be good. Here's the second way to maintain joy in the midst of struggle. Joy involves remembering that your standing before God is secure. So, so you can have joy when you remember what's unchanging even when the winds of change are blowing all around you. And what is unchanging is God's love for you. You're standing before him. Now, I want us to be adults about this next part, okay? You ready? <laughs> You'll notice in verse 29, Paul uses this word predestined. And if you stand back and look, you'll, you'll see he is introducing this word not in order to confuse us or to invite us to argue over the definition of the word. He is using this word to comfort Christians. He says this, remember, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. And so I want us to listen to Paul for a moment without imposing any theological agendas on these words, just for a second here. There are historically very strong opinions about this concept, predestination. Has everything, including our salvation, been predetermined by God or do we have free will to choose him? Calvinism or Arminianism. 
And we can start going down a thousand different theological tangents in a thousand different directions. But before any of that, I want you to just sit in what Paul is actually saying here, to feel what he wants you to feel. And Paul says, I want you to know something. And what he wants you to feel and what he wants you to know is the security of God's love for you. Something that's predestined is fixed. And so he's saying your standing before God is absolutely fixed if you're a child of God, no matter what. And it's because of what Christ purchased for you. And in that security, now he's also moving you forward. You're not just fixed. You are changing at the same time because you have been predestined then to be conformed. And it's a little bit of an unfortunate translation because the Greek word here is morphe, from which we get our word metamorphosis. It's not just an outward conformity going along with the crowd. It's an inner transformation. It's the caterpillar to the butterfly kind of change. Something totally different is emerging. And what are we being changed into? Well, we're being changed into the image of his son. And that's why when we get questions all the time about who's welcome at grace, our trans folks welcome at grace, our queer folks welcome at grace, our nationalists, our QAnon folks welcome at grace, our left activists, our right activists. Here's the deal. I just like to say that Jesus practiced transformational inclusiveness. He's the most inclusive figure in history. He doesn't leave anyone out, but he also doesn't leave any of us the way that we were transformation is part of the deal and so we all come to him and we lay ourselves on an anvil and he begins to chip away the rough edges and the parts of us that don't conform to his image we don't come to him in our pride and we say well this is who i am this is my identity take me or leave me no he says part of the deal is that your identity is being conformed into my identity. And so you you just step up onto the potter's wheel here so I can begin to shape you and mold you. You lay down on uh, on the altar because your life is a living sacrifice. And so all are welcome, yes, but just expect that those parts of you that don't conform to the image of his son are going to be changed into the image of his son. All the while, while our identity in him is secure. Now, lest you think that sounds like a pretty big sacrifice to make, I want you to think about the image of Jesus for a moment, the one we're being changed into, you know, that we're being conformed to. What it means to be sanctified is that you're becoming passionately in love with not just obeying some set of rules, but with the character of Jesus. And so we read about him in the Bible and we're amazed by things like, what do you see when you see Jesus? Well, you see truth and yet love. You see wisdom. You see unbelievable approachability. You see utter conviction. You see incredible courage. You see a brightness. You see a radiance. You see a power. You, you see an attractiveness that draws people. You also see a sharp edge that discerns right from wrong. And so if you come to him, he begins molding you, sometimes breaking you, but sculpting you, contouring you, polishing you. It's shaping you. To what end? For what goal? Well, to be conformed to his image. His grand project is to make you like him so that he can give you that same incredible greatness of soul. He he is going to give you that incredible compassion. He's going to give you that incredible sensitivity. He's going to give you that incredible courage. He's going to allow you to walk in that incredible power. And everything that's happening in your life is unto that end. Everything. It's, it's, It's predestined. It's fixed. It's guaranteed. Lock it in. You're in a collision course with that kind of greatness. Nothing can hold you back from that. Everything God is doing in your life is both fixing you securely in your standing before him and at the same time changing you, moving you, conforming you into his image. 
It's why in this next chain of adjectives that we'll read, he uses uses all past tense, including glorified, which we expect to be a future thing. Because I think he's saying it's as good as done. It's guaranteed, it's fixed. He he is going to make you radiant and holy and joyful like Jesus. He is committed to that. He is not gonna let anything in life get in between you and that. No matter what people have done to you and no matter what you have done to yourself, no matter how much you flail around and no matter how much people have tried to harm you, God is not gonna let any of that get, get you away from this. And so what are these adjectives? Well, I want you to look at verse 30. He already said in in 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Now look what he says in 30. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. William Perkins, who taught theology at Cambridge in England around 17th century, called this passage the golden chain. Five links of a chain that's wrapped lovingly and affectionately around you ensuring that you're brought into eternity. These five links are foreknowledge and predestination and calling and justification and glorification. God is working all these things together for that good. The pains, the trials, the heartaches, the disappointments, the frustrations, they're all part of what God is doing to bring you into his likeness, into this glory. Now, I want to address this debate just for a moment longer before we move on. I promise you we won't solve this in the next five minutes that I'm going to give to it because the debate is as old as our faith. So Calvinism or Arminianism, predestination or free will, God's sovereignty or our choice. Let, Let me just give a little definition. It's not perfect, but Calvinism emphasizes God's absolute determining sovereignty and salvation, that before salvation, God predetermined which individuals would be his elect and which would be saved. Arminianism also affirms that God chooses who will be saved, but that his choosing is conditional on whether or not an individual responds to his grace by putting his or her faith in Christ. So I had a Bible professor who who had set out to write a book about this theological conundrum. I was talking to him many years ago about his research over lunch one day, and he said, Derek, my very first step was to make two columns, <laughs> one devoted to predestination, God's predestination, and one devoted to our free will. He said, then I read the Bible cover to cover, specifically taking note of every verse in the Bible that supported one side or the other, and I put them in these columns. And when, I, when I got done, he said, I had the exact same number of verses in both columns, exactly equal amounts of biblical evidence supporting these sides. And so anyone who gets super black and white on this issue isn't being totally honest with the testimony of Scripture. At some level, we have to acknowledge that mysteriously and inexplicably, both things are somehow true. We have to hold these two contradictory concepts, one in each hand, and acknowledge the truth of both in light of the fact that we can't see perfectly this side of heaven exactly how this thing happens. Those two truths are God is absolutely sovereign and we are absolutely responsible for our actions toward him. I think one of the best passages that acknowledges both sides of this is Philippians 2, 12 and 13. In it, Paul says, Therefore, my beloved, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And we're like, well, who is it that's working? Well, in his sovereignty, God has done the work of our salvation. But but he also says, We still need to work it out with fear and trembling. He has done his his part, but there's also a part that we must do in response. 
And so let's look at this golden chain one more time. It begins with foreknowledge. The common understanding of this word is that God knows ahead of time who will be saved. But, but Paul's adding a little twist here because to know, this idea of knowledge in the Old Testament, it's an expression of deep intimacy. It is a deep and intimate love. And what Paul is saying by using this word foreknowing is that God has set his love upon us ahead of time, his affection upon us in eternity. His love for you began before the world was made. That's an amazing concept. It says, and those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Now, predestination is... This is more of a family conversation among Christians, okay? This is definitely not something worth arguing about with those who aren't believers. And here's why I say that. Because there's an experiential component to this idea that, that's undeniable. And if you haven't experienced it, like most unbelievers haven't, it's nearly impossible to grasp. And here's what I mean. If you're a Christian, I don't care if you're a Calvinist, Arminianism, rich, poor, black, white, Baptist, charismatic, I don't care, any of that stuff. When you came to the moment of trusting in Jesus, when you flop down on your knees and you cry out to God and you understand that, that you have to be saved and that God has rescued you and you've been reborn, there is not one person I've ever talked to who, who, who went through that and walked away from that moment saying, I did that. Like, even if you believe that you were actively, volitionally putting your faith in Jesus, there's always this sense, I don't care who you are, of he chose me first. Like the reason that I'm here right now on my knees is because God, you chose me. I don't know why, but you pursued me. You tracked me down. You made a way for me. Now, after a while, people can forget that moment and all kinds of nonsense can come out of their mouths. But in the heart of every believer is a deep understanding that I am only saved because of God's sovereign, divine initiative. We all know it deep down. If God hadn't chosen me first, I would never have chosen him. So he foreknew, he predestined. Then it says he called. And these last few, I'm not gonna spend as much time on because we, we've already defined them, but he called you. What does that mean? He gave you an invitation to follow him and to fulfill your purpose on this earth. And then it says he justified you. We said before, this is when he places you in right relationship with himself. God credited Jesus' payment to your account. Isn't that incredible? And then Paul says he glorified you. Now, you're expecting him to say he will glorify you, but he puts it in the past tense because it's certain, you see. It's as if you've, you're already glorified, which brings us back to our very point right here, that there is a certainty to your standing before God, which is why you can experience inexplicable joy during this lifetime. Now, I want to talk to you pastorally just for a moment, not theologically. I don't want you to hear a college professor here. I want you to hear your pastor. Paul's point here is that if you're a child of God, if you've surrendered to his love, there is a deep sense of security and assurance that that love will never be taken from you. And when you have that, it helps you to confidently know who you are. It allows you to be bold, it allows you to be courageous, to take risks, to do, to do good, even under intense pressure to not do that good. Paul says these truths, this golden chain, should wrap around you and give you such joy and confidence that you can face anything this life throws at you. So, we've said, joy means rethinking how you define good. Joy involves remembering that you're standing before God is secure. And the third way to maintain joy, even in the midst of struggle, is to know that Jesus, uh, sorry, joy recognizes God's track record of relentless grace. So, so Paul is rounding into the conclusion of this amazing chapter. 
This section from verse 31 to the end is actually in the format of a hymn. Paul is summarizing and actually rejoicing in all the other amazing truths of Romans 8 and this wonderful description of the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And so Paul pulls out every rhetorical device in his arsenal to move us, his readers, to internalize these truths of God's provision. And so he starts his wrap-up with these words, and I love it. He says, what then shall we say to these things? He's going, what's left to say? You almost get this sense that Paul is speechless. And then he goes on. He says, if God is for us, who can be against us? Oh, man, how precious are those two words, for us. God is for us. There are no two more wonderful words in all the universe than God is for us us. And in the same way, there are no more, two, two more terrifying words, fearful words in the universe than God is against us. You never want to find yourself in a place where God is against you. But people will be against you. Like this little rhetorical question here, who will be against us? That it doesn't mean that you won't have adversaries. Oh, you will. Who can be against us? He said, well, lots of people and lots of forces and evil of every kind. You will have adversaries. But what the promise of this verse is that as a man or woman of God filled with his spirit, you will have no successful adversaries. And, and here comes the track record. This is God's calling card, God's ledger of generosity. This is the gospel. Paul goes from here to the end of this chapter presenting an argument from greater to lesser. He starts with God's own son, infinitely precious to the Father. And, and, and his point is, if he was willing to go that far, there's no good thing left that he will withhold from you. Look at verse 32. It says, And he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So, some of you should go back and read that about 100 times this week. Like if you're ever sitting in your current circumstances just struggling, or maybe you're even pouting, maybe you're having a little pity party for yourself. You're thinking, woe is me, God doesn't even love me, God has abandoned me. Just ask the Holy Spirit, the, the, the advocate, our counselor. Say, Spirit of God, would you remind me? Would you remind me of God's track record of grace? And then just allow him to preach this gospel over you. Preach it over yourself. If you ever question the love of God for you, look at the cross. If God was willing to give his own son, is he not willing also to graciously give us all things? You need no other proof. The cross is this shining reminder that your crap can never outweigh God's grace. And that same son who died for you is now at the father's side, his father's side, interceding for you. Our big idea says that God doesn't promise to offer you a, a better life circumstances, but a better life, and that better life includes this glorious future. And, and, and sometimes you have to find your way to joy by looking at the longer view. See, joy requires a longer view. All things work together, but they may not work together right now. You've been chosen and predestined and called, but the payoff is Christ's likeness. And the real ultimate payoff is not going to be until eternity. I don't know if you've ever read Dostoevsky's classic, The Brothers Karamazov, but in, in that novel, even Ivan Karamazov, who was an unbeliever, he understood this concept. Through, through Ivan's character, Dosto, Dostoevsky wrote these words. 
He said, I have a childlike conviction that the sufferings will be healed and smoothed over and that ultimately at the world's finale, in the moment of eternal harmony, there will occur and be revealed something so precious that it will suffice for all hearts to allay all indignation, to redeem all human villainy, all bloodshed. It will suffice not only to make forgiveness possible, but also to justify everything that has happened with men. Paul said it this way, way back in 818, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not even worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Paul says, do you understand glory? Like if you understand what is to come, you can handle anything here. And so he's considering, he's thinking, he said, I consider these things. I'm calling to mind a vision of the future. See, joy comes in the long view. And most of us go through life with a short view. Our perspective often only allows us to see what is right in front of us, right now in this moment, the decisions that are burdening us right now, the, the relationships that are dragging us down right now, the struggles that we're experiencing right now, the day-to-day -day stuff of life that appears so pressing. And when we talk about joy and when we talk about the long view, it ultimately comes down to a matter of stepping away from that and taking a heavenly perspective. I've shared this before, but it was a number of years ago on one of those uh, anniversaries of D-Day. I saw back-to-back -back documentaries re remembering the carnage on the beaches of Normandy. And I, wa I watched the first half-hour special, which was a series of interviews with some of the U.S. ground troops. You know, the guys that had come on the boats and had run up onto the beaches that day. We've all seen the, the brutal portrayals of that scene. And the, these foot soldiers were describing in detail their experience and the carnage that they witnessed. And it seemed at times they'd look around like every U.S. soldier around them was being killed. And they saw no advancement of troops, only death and destruction all around them. One of the men that they interviewed said these words. He said, I looked around, just kept thinking in, in, in my mind, there's no way we can win. There's no way we can win. Well, that mini documentary ended. And they followed it with another half-hour show that was dedicated to interviews with some of the, 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 the pilots, the Allied pilots that were flying reconnaissance missions over that very same battlefield, that very same day. They were seeing the exact same scene unfolding only from a different perspective, from the air. And they were able to see troop advancements and they were able to see retreating enemy soldiers. And one of the pilots in his interview said that as he saw the images coming in from the reconnaissance missions, he kept saying to himself, there's no way we can lose. There's no way we can lose. See, this is the power of perspective, the power of the long view. And in the long view, we remind ourselves again and again that there's no way we can lose. And we take joy in that regardless of our present circumstances. So here's what I want you to do today by way of a next step. I'm just wondering if any of you hear this verse, all things work together for good, and you have this kind of like, must be nice reaction. Like you haven't arrived at joy. Maybe you're bitter, maybe you're pretending put on the smiley face, or maybe you're just waiting with, with kind of a, a fingers crossed approach for things to turn around for you. And God wants to remind you today that the good life, the joy-filled life, is the one in which you are most like Jesus, conformed to the image of his son. And in light of that, I just want to provide space at the end here. Why don't you just draw to mind any of your, your false expectations of the good life? Just offer those back to God. Is there anything God is bringing to mind for you to repent of? Is there anything that the Spirit of God is stirring in your heart to do this week about what you learned today? I just want to provide some space for some listening prayer.
as we conclude today. Take a quiet moment right now. Love you guys.